G'day, mate. Forty here. I can't believe I am doing a show on love. Like, love is the last topic that I thought I'd ever talk about because, I mean, I grew up a, a Christian, and Christians were always talking about love. And I just had, you know, no desire to return to what I was doing as a kid. And like, love just seems like the the lamest of all possible talks, you know, subjects to to talk about. Like, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, creating a, a show on, on, you know, the art of loving. Like, give me a break. I mean, what is it? Is there any art to to loving? I mean, isn't this just the, the stuff of cliche? But here's why I'm doing a show on loving. I, I realize that my whole worldview is based upon love. I mean, I couldn't be doing th- this show right now if if my life wasn't filled with love. Like, I was wide awake by 3:30 this morning. I was up before 4 a.m. I put in about two hours finding shows from June, July of 2018 that were no longer online and putting them online, putting them on my Odyssey and on my Rumble. So we are now going out live across YouTube. We are live across my Facebook page. We're live across my Facebook profile. We're live on Twitter. We're live on Rumble and we're live on Odyssey. So I had the energy to to do that for two hours, then you know, do a, a Another about an hour or so of spiritual practices in the morning, get out there, make a few hundred dollars, right? And so I spend 10, 20 hours a week live streaming. I spend 40 plus hours a week working, making money. I spend about 10, 15 hours a week volunteering. I spend about, I don't know, 10 hours a week reading newspapers and magazines. I spend probably another five hours a week reading book reviews, and I probably spend another 20 hours a week reading books. So the only way I get the energy to do that is because I'm constantly interacting with people who I love and who love me. Like I could not stand here today, right? If I, you know, hated my neighbors, right? That just, uh, you know, that that would wear on me. I, I couldn't stand here today if, like, I was, you know, worn down going into you know, the office uh, with with you know people who who I didn't like or doing work I didn't like. Uh, see uh, <laughs> message on Twitter. The beef organ capsules are a slippery slope. 2022, Luke takes up beef organ capsules. All right, Luke Ford is here. What comes next is chicken meat. Then 2024, we're talking about beef. 2025, cigarettes. 2026, beer. 2027, wine. 2028, whiskey. 2029, weed. 2030, cocaine. 2031, heroin. 2032, fentanyl. So here's the proof in 2012, 2013 into 2014, when I really didn't have much love in my life, I hardly made any videos, right? I just didn't have the inner strength. It takes so much like inner strength, energy, enthusiasm. It it requires something, all right? It requires a fire to, to do as many shows as I do. And I could not do that if I wasn't just constantly going through the day, interacting with people who I loved and who loved me, right? You think if I was surrounded by people who were indifferent to me or hostile to me or just like accommodating me that I would then have have the energy at the end of the day after getting up, you know, 3.30 a.m. to, you know, do an hour, two hour live stream. No, heck no. But because I'm just constantly getting fed. So I don't know what your life is like, but... There's just no energy like the energy you get when, say, you're in a workplace where you love people and they love you. 
when you have a synagogue, a minion, a church, all right, where you love people and they love you, where you have, you know, social gatherings, clubs, pursuits, all right, volunteer opportunities with people you love and who love you, all right, that's absolutely essential to really getting anything done in life. And I, I realize now that it's basically the, the foundation of my worldview. People go way off track if they start searching for meaning, right? Your meaning in life should come from the people you love and the people who love you, right? If you have to look for meaning above and beyond that, that's a big flashing red light that something's seriously, seriously wrong with your life, right? If you have to go convert to another religion, and sometimes uh, for, the, for the rare individual, that's appropriate, and it's something that I did, but overall, if you feel like your pursuit of meaning is taking you to convert to another religion, you know, that's a big flashing light that there's something way off in your life. Right? You should be getting your meaning in life from the people you love. You should be getting your politics in life from the people you love. You should want the people you love to thrive. Right? You should want the people you love to stay safe. And you should be hostile and even hate those who threaten those who you love. Right? I used to think that uh, morality right, was best learned from God-based ethics as embodied in the Torah, and you learn from people who are seriously learned in Torah. And I still love that. I still enjoy that. But I've reluctantly come to the conclusion that that is not the you know, best, most efficient vehicle for getting people to behave decently. The best, most efficient vehicle for getting people to behave decently is to endow people with something to lose, meaning people, right, people that they love. Right? If you don't want to horrify, hurt, dismay, disturb people you love, you will behave decently, generally speaking. And, and that is the best guarantor of decency, of, of morality, of making people better, of making individuals better, communities better, you know, making a, a better world is enabling people to connect. So I was on a hike on Runyon Canyon the other day. And so Runyon Canyon is this great steep hike between Hollywood Boulevard and Mulholland Drive. And it's part of uh, West Hollywood. And there's a couple of benches there with a big sign up in, in, by Running Kenyon in West Hollywood that, that these are benches particularly meant for connection, right? If you sit on these benches, right, it's not because you want to be left alone. And so I'd taken, I'd taken a wrong turn on my hike and I ended up going like straight up a hill and I was just covered with thistles and cut and like my socks and my shoes just you know covered with, with thistles to, to the extent it took me an hour you know seated on the connection bench you know taking my shoes off my socks off and you know pulling out these thistles one by one but what a great idea having a connection bench right every city should do that right in, in a park you know set aside particular benches this is a bench that you come to sit on if you want to connect with people so coming from that place of connection, that case of bonds, that case of family and virtual family and extended family and, you know, related to family. All right. That's the best place for morality, the best place for decency, the best place to start building up social trust, the best way to start calming down from one's debilitating anxiety. I struggle with, you know, huge amounts of anxiety. Like we wouldn't be here if we weren't anxious, right? Our ancestors who weren't particularly anxious, right, they got eaten by tigers, and we wouldn't be here if we weren't constantly making judgments. Like, oh, that person looks dumb. That person looks dangerous. That person looks uh, stupid. That person looks inconsiderate. That person looks admirable. All right. We wouldn't be alive because our ancestors who weren't constantly making those judgments, all right, 
they they <laughs> died out. Connection benches says the chat sound like that obvious next step from public washrooms. <laughs> right. And <laughs> okay. Uh, look, I'm all for connection and building social trust, but I am not for designating certain, you know, public restrooms as uh, cottages, right? This is not, you know, let, let's not uh, designate this, this public restroom as, you know, a wonderful, safe place for cottaging, uh, free from the, the intrusive eye of the, the policeman. No, I, I won't go that far. But uh, you look at all, all the pundits out there. I, I mean, I pretty much only listen to right-wing pundits except maybe the last year or two I started lift, listening to more pundits on the left such as the decoding the gurus academics but generally speaking I listen to a lot of right-wing pundits and they are such dilettantes I mean they are so shallow like people who are excited about Dennis Prager and Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro and a lot of the schlock that Tucker Carlson is you know in some ways the best of the lot but he still puts out you know at least as much schlock and crap as, as good stuff uh, people who are excited about this dilettante you know moronic life right they're, they're missing meaning and connection in your life right you're trying to get a false sense of excitement from giving politics its proper due like i get to you know hang out with some high functioning people and it is just it's just amazing right so much of human connection is a foreign language to me now so many normal ways of you know, conducting a life is just, you know, a foreign language to me. I, I didn't grow up dancing. Dancing was a sin. I didn't grow up going to movies. Movies were a sin. I didn't grow up going to theater. Theater was a sin. I, I didn't grow up, you know, enjoying competition. Competition was a sin. I didn't grow up playing cards. Playing cards was a sin. So, so many of the basics of normal human interaction and communal activities were regarded as sins in my upbringing, along with the crazy, debilitating vegetarian diet that I internalized, right? It uh, it crippled me in many ways. I mean, I am developmentally disabled in all sorts of forms of, of human connection. But when I meet like high functioning people, right, you notice that uh, they they may or may not enjoy sports, but they don't build their lives around their sporting identity, right? If you build your life around your sporting identity, you don't have enough love in your life. You don't have enough meaning, connection, community, family. All right, there's something really wrong. You're disconnected if you have to build your life around sports. Uh, High-functioning people, I notice, they don't build their life uh, around things that they can't control, like politics, all right? High-functioning, high-IQ, successful people accomplishing a great deal uh, may or may not take an interest in politics, but their happiness in life does not depend upon politics, right? Their meaning in life does not depend upon politics. Their identity in life does not depend upon politics. Their identity primarily comes from their family and, and from their work. And so people who are high functioning, like people who are very effective, people earning, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? They may or may not be interested in sports and they may or may not be interested in politics, right? And they may or may not be religious, but they are not deformed by these pursuits, right? Whenever you meet someone who seems deformed by their pursuit of sports or, or politics or, or religion, all right, these are people who don't have normal human connection, right? They don't have love in their life. They're not, you know, bonded to family and to friends and to community. And so I get to spend a lot of my time in Beverly Hills and I get to meet, you know, a lot of, you know, high functioning, very smart, very accomplished, you know, affluent, successful people. And they are not deforming themselves. They're not painting their faces, you know, according to their favorite sporting team 
they are not you know resting satisfaction happiness meaning and purpose in life on political outcomes right they don't see the world through a narrow prism of you know whether or not people conform to a particular religious belief system or or practice system all right you know higher functioning people are able to have love in their life also you know follow who they are right ha have their own pursuits have, have their own opinions so i do this show because i'm powered by the people i love in my life and they don't get a veto over the topics i discuss but i carry them with me they are with me right now i have their presence with me and i will say things that they will disagree with and i will occasionally say things that will be offensive to them but if i'm going to say things that are offensive to the people who i love most in my life i'm going to bend over backwards to try to not unnecessarily damage these important relations and i think that's that's the, the best way to go through life I say that because the opposite of that, like not taking into consideration your most valued love people in your life just produces such, you know, horrible behavior online. And so when I just see, you know, the awful behavior online and it's just so blindingly obvious that these are not people who, who love, who have, you know, close ties with family, friends, community, that uh, that kind of drives me back to this embarrassing position. I'm saying, yeah, love is the foundation, right? Who you love, that should be the foundation of your politics, your morality, your your life force, your your energy. All right. If if you're running low on energy, if you're depressed, if you if you're uh, passive in life, right? <laughs> the best way to rev up, get more emotional energy, is to connect with people, create shared reality with people. Like even if you were to just march march with people, right? Just marching together with people, you know, fills you up. High functioning people aren't too particular not too precise yeah well they're not super particular about you know sports they're not hanging their life on some peg like sports politics uh religion uh you know this cultural attitude you know this social attitude all right they they you know see a, a broad roomy you know world out there where there are just so many different paths to thrive and so many different paths to happiness they they look out there and they see what I see right now, trees of green, skies of blue, children crying, and we think, you know, what a, a beautiful world. So this guy who I'm about to introduce you to, Dr. Michael McGee, you're going to think he is the dumbest, gayest, silliest, uh, most moronic, most feminine, uh, pointless, cliche-mongering, and, and that that would be my reaction if, if I just looked at him and if I just listened to him. But what he has to say is gold, right? And this should be the basis for politics, right? This should be the basis for how you conduct yourself online and, and offline. No one else is, though others can support and guide us, as this meeting, I think, is doing for many people. Um, so for me, this practice starts with a, the practice of cultivating a, a loving awareness starts each day in stillness and ends in stillness with an intention to love. So I would like to, I, I uploaded a file, and I would like to, um, to... So what's the alternative? Start each day in noise like to start each day on social media like start each day checking your your comments your likes your, your mentions right your direct messages your email right between those two alternatives i think this guy's under something who basically um just read this dedication that i've memorized and i i've uploaded it for you all i invite you all to look at it and see what you think of it um but basically this is a dedication that i read at the end of my, my morning meditation every day and it's my it's my dedication to living an intentional life of love. So I'll just read this for you if you all want to, to, to join me in, in this. 
again, this is off the prayer of St. Francis, uh, adapted from him. I wish I could take credit for total originality, but I can't. May I be a channel of love. May I heal hatred with love, harm with forgiveness, doubt with faith, despair with hope, darkness with light, sadness with joy. May I seek more to console than to be consoled, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For I know that in giving, we receive. In forgiving, we are forgiven. And in transcending self, we realize our greatest joy. So that's just an example of, of the kind of intentional devotion that, that uh, I, I personally practice, that I develop. Everything on this show. I mean, we go the whole gambit, but listening to this guy, it made me reflect one thing that we don't really have much on, much of on this show is reverence. Like, when was the last time like reverence you know, played a role in your life? I mean, I'm just thinking about women right now. I mean, think about how pretty you know, women are. Think about how delightful and charming women are. Think about how hospitable and nice and often sweet women can be. Think about how devoted they can be to their children, to their husbands, to their brothers, to their family. Think about how nurturing they are. Like when you when you get to be around good women, right? Maybe maybe a little more reverence, right? That's not putting pussy on a pedestal, right? Th that, that phrase, putting pussy on a pedestal, all right, that's kind of the, the opposite of the, the reverent attitude. But, I mean, think about experts who devote their lives to one topic and, you know, try to, you know, use their, their devotion in, in, in a publicly spirited way. Like, maybe, maybe some reverence for the Dr. Anthony Fauci's of the world. Like, Fauci's flawed, Fauci was wrong about this and that. But overall, he pretty much was, was speaking from within the, the scientific consensus as it was known at the time. So we've got everything on the show. We've got love. We've got hate. You know, we've got scorn. We've got laughter. We've got satire and, and sarcasm. But like maybe we need to light a candle instead of cursing the darkness. Uh, maybe we need more reverence in our life. I think I need more reverence in my life. Like, Many people say I'm the most cynical person they know, and that's basically true. Basically, the only thing that I don't mock is the, the 12 steps, but I'm not even sure that's true. I'm sure I, I do lots of uh, mocking of the 12 steps, but when you meet a good woman, like someone who's kind to you, someone who's nice to you, someone who's helpful, someone who's loyal, right? someone who's, who's honest, someone who's hospitable, someone who's devoted, like, why not why not feel some reverence for that? And, and that doesn't mean you distort yourself, and that doesn't mean that you act the fool, and that doesn't mean that you, you know, turn into a, a wimp. But uh, how about some, you know, some reverence for some expertise, some reverence for, you know, a man who provides for his family, uh, some reverence for people who, you know, make interesting, creative, important technological, scientific, you know, breakthroughs. And, and improve our life. I'm listening to this guy, and I think he's right on. Like, this this show has everything in it but reverence. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, let's let's explore a little reverence tonight. Let's let's light a candle, right? Here's the, here's the alternative to reverence. From fairly holy guy, right? A guy who's smarter than me, more holy than me, probably more, more religious than me, 
right, more accomplished than me, you know, someone who'd be a better neighbor, better man, who's a better talk show host than, than I am, Dennis Prager. But uh, still such a dilettante, right? Still, you know, committing epistemic sabotage. Just he's back from his four-day vacation in Europe. The, there is nothing comparable in Europe to the American left. I mean, there, may, there are a handful of... Come on, I mean, come on, seriously. Do you, do you, do you think for a second that that's true, right? That you, you really think there's nothing comparable in, in Europe? He, he was in Europe for four days, and like a dilettante, like a guru, comes back with proclamations, all right, that uh, are not really much based in reality. So how about, how about we develop a reverence for reality on this show? A reverence for the complexity of reality. A reverence for our own limits, right? Maybe embody kind of the opposite of this Dennis Prager attitude. Radical leftists, but in the United States, one of the two political parties is run by the radical left. You do not have that in Europe. Oh, the, the, the Democratic Party is the radical left. I mean, who are the communists? Like, who is like Joseph Stalin? Like, the the uh, Europe really does have have far left radical parties and uh the the democrats for for left-wing party compared to other left-wing parties in europe is uh fairly moderate you do not have the the trans activism in europe that you have in the united states in fact in england they closed down the biggest single medical authority that was doing what is routinely done now in children's hospitals around the united states surgically removing girls breasts who say that they are boys and boys genitalia who say they're girls celebrating the fact that they are gender affirming which is okay so i think you know that kind of gender affirming mutilation is is horrible but it's not a dominant facet of of life in the united states today right i mean we're talking you know fewer than one person in ten thousand americans you know gets this kind of surgery as much a lie as the inflation reduction act which was an inflation creation act or a creation increase act they don't affirm gender. They deny it. That's the irony. They are gender-denying hospitals. No, you're really not a boy. No, you're really not a girl. That is a denial of what you really are. You don't, you don't have that there. Yeah, so kind of a different way to talk about this would be, yeah, there are some ways that Europe is superior to the United States, and there are some ways that America is superior to Europe, and there are some ways Australia is superior to both, and there are some ways that Australia is inferior to, to both. Like different peoples, different civilizations have, have different gifts. It's not so exciting, right? You're not going to, you know, cruise into, you know, high-profile, you know, powerful, you know, money-making career as a pundit you know, making such a inane observation as I did. But you know, think about the alternative here with, with this level of hot air. I, I am sure that the levels of depression, by the way, if you hear noise in the background, which I assume you do, it is because I am broadcasting, as I tend to do each year, at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention this year taking place in Florida. So I flew from Munich to Florida, actually through Atlanta, and really aching to get to Florida when I found out that the pilots had not arrived for the airplane. It's a puzzle to me how exactly that happens. Do airlines schedule it so tight that if the flight that the, the crew is on is late, you don't leave? I don't know. I don't know the answer. But in any event, I did get here, and obviously I did, because here I am broadcasting. And I will personally thank those who sent in for me, because they do such a fantastic job. In the course of the show... Oh, okay. Carl Jackson. And Amala Epinobi. 
and Julie Hart. It's sort of un- an unbelievable, unbelievable thing to me. The United States is the exporter of bad ideas, the, the biggest exporter of bad ideas on planet Earth. China is the worst regime, well, except for North Korea, but that's a separate issue. But in terms of damage to the world, Russia's up there. But in terms of, re- of destructive ideas, the United States uh, is unfortunately the great exporter of this stuff. They, they're, they're carefree there. If- so I, I missed the, my sound link there. I missed him saying that the United States is now morally behind uh, Europe. I mean, just, just imagine the, the chutzpah, the, the guru unwarranted confidence, just the, the dilettantish attitude towards telling the truth to come back from four days in Europe and say, oh, the United States is now morally behind Europe. And then for 50 years prior to this, Dennis Prager was constantly preaching how the United States was morally ahead of Europe. There are always some ways that, uh, you know, many Americans were morally superior to Europeans. There are always plenty of ways that Europeans were were morally superior to Americans. But uh, you don't get to be a pundit with, you know, that kind of subtlety. If you would say to a, a university student in Germany, you know, you may not be a girl. You, you, may, you may actually be a boy. Have you ever really considered that fact? They would, they would consider you a lunatic. It's, it's only here that, uh, and Canada. Canada and the United States are in a race uh, to dystopia. It's a competition. Sometimes Canada's winning, sometimes the United States is winning. But it, it is a competition, as I said, to the dark world of, the, of dystopia. So that was one of the impressions that I got while I was in Germany. But just imagine saying that life in the United States or Canada today is a dystopia, right? Compared to, to where? Where do you think it's so much more idyllic than life in the United States and Canada? There are tough parts of the United States. There are lots of bad things about being in the United States or Canada. But compared to life on, on planet Earth in 2023, right? Really? Life in the United States, life in Canada is a dystopia? I mean, just imagine the chutzpah, the... The, the, the casual, dilettantish attitude towards life and commentary that, that you know, one would have to, to make such absurd proclamations, along with, can it happen here? Meaning Nazi Germany. Yes, it is happening here. Which uh, Dennis devoted a program, <laughs> a column to programs to. Okay, so maybe, yeah, maybe let's develop something new. Like, let's develop reverence on this show how to become a traditional wife number one embracing ultra traditional gender roles into your marriage the man he is the provider the main breadwinner he goes out of the house and works the woman the wife she is the homemaker she takes care of the home she takes care of herself and she does the cooking and the cleaning number two and i cannot stress this enough you have to marry the right man If you marry a guy who in your dating life, he showed abusive and control tendencies, this is a disaster waiting to happen because when you become financially dependent on this man, he will abuse all of that. So make sure that you take your dating life very seriously. If you are not dating to eventually marry that person, you're wasting your time. Number three, learn to cook, learn to clean, and learn how to host. I probably got in the kitchen at like three years old with my mom and she taught me how to cook, how to bake. She taught me how to clean, although I could definitely progress on that. Cooking and cleaning are life skills that can benefit you and your family forever. Number four, you have to have something for yourself. As a traditional wife, you are spending a lot of your day catering to others, whether it is your husband or your family. And it's important to have something that is meant just for you. 
This could be sewing. This could be painting. I don't know, ice skating. Find something that is just for you and put that in your life every single day. And number five, and I mean this in the best way possible, upkeep your beauty maintenance. Men, husbands, they're very visual and I'm not saying put a full face of makeup on every day, but I do mean to pull yourself together and to make sure that you look presentable, whatever that may mean to you. For me, full face of makeup. I love house dresses and that's just me. But make sure you are keeping up with your beauty and yourself. You are fit. You are healthy. Right. Why not have reverence for someone like this or for these kind of attitudes and capabilities? I mean, do you think I'd have the energy to do all these shows and to do all the volunteering and all the working and all the earning and all the contributing and all the you know, mind-blowing, cutting-edge insights? Like, if I wasn't constantly interacting with you know beautiful, charming women. Right, beautiful, charming, helpful, loyal, devoted women are awesome. They're a tremendous source of life and and love and vitality and energy and enthusiasm. And if you have the privilege of being around them, being a part of your life, I mean, have some reverence for that. So yeah, I know you're going to think, oh, Dr. Michael McGee, this is the lamest person ever you put on your show, forty. But what he has to say is gold. It's gold. Um, and I start my day with that. And then I, I try and carry that loving awareness, that stillness, stillness in motion, I call it. <laughs> to be still while still moving, that is everything. And, uh, and then with that inspiration, with that reverence, with that groundedness, with that giving oneself over to be a channel of love, we then act with love. And we love ourselves and we allow others to love us as part of loving ourselves. We ask for help, but we don't advocate personal responsibility for our lives. And we love others. We love ourselves. We love others we allow others to love us. So I'd like to now uh, uh, read just a little bit to you about each of 31 different love practices that I have, have developed and written about and, and are part of my course on mastering the art of loving that, that I give on Thursday nights at, at 5.30 before this meeting. So the first practice is abstaining from harm. This is probably so important that I, I had it once as the four A's of awakening with abstaining being one of the four A's, but then I consolidated it into one of the one of the 31 love practices this includes harming yourself and others in words or deed uh, we abstain from good now bad later impulses and cravings such as lashing out at someone in anger or engaging in harmful addictions in right people talk about love 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 all the time but this guy spells it out he's so specific and i love he, he does 31 love practices and number one is you know abstaining from gratuitous harm to yourself to others it's a great place to begin instead abstaining involves metabolizing anger into constructive responses to harm and finding loving ways to soothe ourselves sometimes a loving thing to do is painful such as telling someone a painful truth they need to know so it does require discernment to ensure we abstain from causing harm even when causing pain sometimes we can't help but harm someone for a greater good an example might be in the extreme of protecting ourselves from an attacker, which is a rare thing that unfortunately most of us don't have to experience. The second practice is compassion for self and others. Compassion is acting to relieve our suffering and the suffering of others. Sometimes this may just involve giving others our caring and attention and support. The third practice is forgiveness. Yeah, just giving someone a little bit of your attention, right? Asking the security guard for her name and then saying hi to her every morning right just uh, these little things 
will charge you up, will, will increase your energy and happiness levels, and will increase her energy and happiness levels. This of self and others. This involves liberating ourselves from negative judgments of ourselves and others. So I walk around Beverly Hills, and I'm constantly seeing people wearing a face mask in their car. And I don't believe that wearing a face mask when you're alone in your car is therapeutic, right? I don't believe that it's doing you good. But I'm not going to waste time hating the person. I'm going to respect that they are virtue signaling. They are signaling that they take COVID seriously and that they take their responsibilities to other people seriously. And animals signal all the time. Signaling is an essential part of being alive. Virtue signaling is virtuous. Virtue signaling is good. Right? We want people to virtue signal. And virtue signaling that you take you know, the coronavirus seriously and you take your responsibilities to your fellow citizens seriously and that you don't want to you know, catch something that could be very harmful to you. You don't want to transmit something that could be very harmful to you. And you're willing to go to absurd lengths to send out that signal about this. That's virtuous, right? You could look at it as a stupid, you know, moronic, idiotic, uh, self-destructive, antisocial, and you can make good cases for, for many of the, these criticisms, but why not respect the virtue signaling, right? Why not live in reality, realize that the way all sorts of living creatures function is by constantly signaling, right? Signaling is just essential to how animals conduct themselves. It's essential to how human beings conduct themselves. You want people signaling that they are virtuous. You want people signaling that they care about other people. You want people to signal that they take care and consideration and that they're not just going to blunder around. So when you see someone driving around wearing a face mask alone in a car, right? Have some compassion and have some empathy and have some satisfaction and joy that a lot of people want to signal to others that they care, that they want to be pro-social, that they want to be responsible. It involves honoring the reality of things and seeking to deeply understand the causes and conditions that drove us and others to cause harm. With deep understanding and the transcendence of judgment that I talked about. Okay, so what causes you to do the most harm is probably your resentments, right? Your natural state, right, is forgiveness, right? Your natural state is to let go. If forgiveness is not natural to you, it's because you're holding on and being warped by your old wounds. And that's not doing you any good, right? Think of the analogy of the air traffic controller. Right? Let's say he needs to you know, land five planes. But if he's all caught up with you know, interactions with other planes in the past, then he, he's got 30 planes circling around in his head that he's trying to land. And so we're all like air traffic controllers, all right? If we're just living in the present, right, then we've only got a few planes that we need to land. But if we're walking around with rage and resentment, if we're holding on to old wounds, then we've got 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 planes that we need to land. And it's overwhelming. It saps your energy, reduces your happiness level. So having some understanding why you hurt other people needlessly, why other people have needlessly hurt you, right, it comes largely from resentment, meaning holding on to old wounds. And it comes from a place of being disconnected, right? Hurt people hurt people. Uh, people who have considerable amounts of, of love in their life don't tend to needlessly go around harming people because they don't want to cause harm to those that they love. And they know that if they go out into the world 
needlessly harming people, that's very likely to boomerang back on the ones that they love. But if you ca carry a sense of the people who are most important to you when you're talking on YouTube, when you're walking down the street, when you're getting on a public bus, all right, when you're conducting yourself you know, at work, in, in worship, at your yoga studio, all right, you'll be much less likely to do needless harm to others. Moving from judgment to discernment, we cultivate the conditions for forgiveness to arise. The fourth practice is protection. This includes protecting ourselves and others from harm. I put this first because it includes protecting um, really all of life, the one life of this planet of which we are all an inextricable, an inextricable part. The fifth practice. So this isn't as exciting as a, a Ben Shapiro or, or a Dennis Prager, you know, fiery Tucker Carlson monologue, but uh, it's probably, uh, probably a lot better for you. Right, let's get a little from Dennis Prager today. Too many acronyms in my name, in my name, in my my brain. The, so the uh, the background noise that you will be hearing today and tomorrow is human beings interacting with one another without electronic devices. You have to understand how remarkable this is. <laughs> People speaking to one another. I'll let you know what I'm thinking. The news is uh, not relentlessly, but it is continuously dark and. The news is continuously dark. Yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of what, what makes news. But we get to choose how much news that we take into our life and, and what sources and, you know, what, what context, right? If you've got family, all right, if you've got family who you love and you've got people who you love, you can take in quite a lot of news and it does not have a dark, depressing effect on you. Uh, nevertheless, I'll give you an example of, of a non-dark story that I just picked up. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal, the leading candidate for mayor of Philadelphia uh, says that the police need to do their job. She's a black woman, Democrat, and she's in the lead. The only group of Democrats to oppose her are rich white liberals in the suburbs. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm censoring myself, my friends. You have to understand the, the amount of expletives that are entering my brain now. I'm glad that I don't tend to... You don't need to be, be furious about this to understand that other people experience life differently, right? And uh, other people have different genetic predispositions, have different imprinting from, from youth, and therefore, you know, have different opinions on politics, right? Why would you get furious about that? There's nothing you can do about it. Right? The only reason you get furious about that is if you're out of reality and you see yourself being a much more important person than you really are. But we're all just bozos on the bus, bro. To the view that thoughts are sins. <laughs> because if they are, I'm doomed. Uh, rich white liberals. What a low-life group, I have to say. <laughs> uh, rich white liberals, what a low-life group. All right. They, they do plenty of good things, right? They, generally speaking, they take care of their families. They make innovations. They employ people, right? They do cutting-edge research, all right? They keep their yard clean, right? They raise decent kids, right? This, you know, this just knee-jerk dismissal of tens, tens of millions of your fellow Americans, it's you know, appealing to people who get a great deal of their sense of meaning and purpose in life from, from politics, but that's a distortion. We shouldn't be doing that, right? It's, it should be a, an interest, it should not be a compulsion. It should not be a peg upon which we, we base our happiness 
our, our identity, our self-worth. Uh, they're, they're, seriously, they are for the most left-wing candidates for mayor of Philadelphia. Overwhelmingly, blacks support the woman who is unapologetically pro-police. Unapologetically. She, in fact... Yeah, blacks tend to prefer their own in-group, right? Blacks tend to have a much stronger in-group identity than uh, whites do, than, than I think any other racial group in America. So, you know, why not, uh, why not respect that, right? There, there are moronic components to, to that, right? Because generally speaking, if you want to thrive in a you know, complex, multiracial, multicultural society like the United States today, you will be more effective and more happy if you don't place you know, race as your number one agenda, right? If you value competence. So I'm sure many English would prefer a white prime minister, but their Indian prime minister, Rishi Sunak, is so much more competent than the previous three white uh, Tory prime ministers. So if you're selecting a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, uh, why would you not want competence, all right? So when, you, when you're navigating the world, Right, we all have our in-group identities based on, on race and based on religion and based on ideology, but it, it needs to be held in check, all right, and and, and recognize that often uh, other people of you know from from an out group are just you know far more competent, and it would behoove us, right? It would make us happier, more effective if we're able to. You know, get along with as wide a number of people as possible, right? You ideally want to have the best possible relations with everyone you encounter in your life. In fact, wants stop and frisk to be reinstated in Philadelphia. She's the leading candidate for mayor of Philadelphia, a black woman supported by well over half the blacks, but the white liberals don't like it because they're not affected by crime. If there is a more narcissistic group of morons than white upper-class liberals, I don't know who they are, and I mean that literally. And so this is, this is the title of his show, Morons, right? And so this is the type of thing that you pump out when you're a right-wing pundit, right? It, it's, it's shallow. It's, uh, it's like a dilettante approach to, to life. Right? And Dr. Michael McGee, all right, he's not as exciting as that fire-breathing pundit. But what he has to say is far more important. It's caution. This entails taking care to minimize or avoid risk of harm, both the risk of harming ourselves and the risk of being harmed. The sixth practice is connection. This is the practice of safely seeing others and being seen by others. When we connect, we share with others what is going on in our lives and what we are thinking, feeling, and doing in response. This connection helps us not to feel alienated and helps us to manage life's ups and downs. The seventh practice is authenticity. This is the practice of being real with others and also with ourselves while varying how transparent we are with others, depending on the intimacy of the relationship. Yeah, people people should uh, have to earn some of your you know, honesty, disclosure, and authenticity. But uh, apparently Ron DeSantis is going to make his announcement that he's running for president in a Twitter dialogue with Elon Musk, which I think is a pretty smart move. The eighth practice is collaboration. This is the practice of cooperation and teamwork to achieve goals we cannot achieve on our own. Right. This show is a collaboration, right? I would not think nearly as clearly just on my own. I, I have to be challenged. I have to get alternative perspectives, right? I have to, you know, hear about alternative experiences, right? We all will go further. We'll all be happier. We'll all be more effective 
right, if we're collaborating and we will all think more clearly when we think socially as opposed to just trying to save things on our own. All right, here's a terrific uh, conversation with Renee DeResta. All right, it's about online ecosystems and uh, censorship, free speech, etc. So she is center-left. She's a writer researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory. And she led an investigation into the Russian Internet Research Agency's multi-year effort to manipulate American society in the lead-up to the 2016 election. And she was dubbed by the writer Michael Schellenberger as the leader of the censorship industry. But uh, this center-left woman has a lot of common sense and interesting things to say. Something which I really liked, which was that you said there was no neutral in yeah. the recommendation algorithm. So, yeah, I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit and just, just let us know where you... What's what's a more nuanced way to think about this instead of the terribly boring kind of thing about are you in fight, are you for free speech or against it? <laughs> yeah. well, I'm, I'm for it. <laughs> yeah, good, um, good. Well, no, I, it's a really interesting question. I've been um, like this was the thing that I actually started off writing about. Right, it wasn't state actor interference. It was actually this question of how do we think about network information cascades and peer to peer information transmission. And if you think about the internet as a you know as, as an ecosystem for capturing attention and, and that having attention can translate to real world power, what you start to see is very significant incentives to manipulate that system to try to get attention. And this was the bots conversation was a very, very big part of this when I first started writing in 2015. Hey, if you make it trend, you make it true, right? It was like this little you know phrase I used in Wired once. And so everybody is trying to game that trending algorithm because everybody wants their hashtag to get that attention to, you know, kind of blow up their social movement or their cause or even their, you know, their shoe brand or whatever. And so it was just this the the game that was created was really, really interesting to me from the standpoint of, okay, well, how do you, you know, how do you use different types of accounts in this system? How does this platform engage with that platform? What do you use one for versus another? And so I started really paying attention to that, again, way before it was state actors. I was kind of captivated by uh, first the anti-vaccine movement, like why were they so good at this? And, you know, you guys, I know study grew, so you've (laughs) probably got some opinions on that too. But structurally, I was really interested in how do they use it? And then uh, then ISIS was sort of the second thing that I became really captivated by, right? You have this organization with this extreme iconography, right? Like, you want to talk about like old school, I mean, that's it. You know, you're growing a caliphate. You're, you're, you know, putting out how grand the world. You're not hiding it in any way. It's not like Russia, you know, operating as things that they're not. It is absolutely transparent over propaganda. And I was fascinated by, you know, who engaged, what they chose to put out and, and this sort of, the sort of style that they were doing. But one of the real interesting questions then was, why is ISIS on Twitter? <laughs> and Facebook had made the decision already by that point, but by 2016, 2017, no, it was late 2015, actually, it was like October. Okay, yeah, it's a good question. Should ISIS be you know, allowed on Twitter, on Facebook. And this is the woman from here, Stanford Internet Observatory. Here's some video of her speaking recently. Interesting question. It's not that disinformation serves their business models. It's high engagement content serves their business models. And the problem is um, people who are looking to manipulate the public will often use very highly engaging, sensational half-truths, innuendo, conspiracy, sensational. You know, people want to go and find out, oh, what is, what is... And she's right, right? The way that you get to become a pundit or an influencer is you know in large part telling people what they want to hear and pushing people's buttons. So people like Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson are amazing at making people feel good. You feel like you're getting something profound when they speak. Now, upon examination, much of what they you know, say and claim and you initially take in as profound just turns out to be you know, silly nonsense is happening here? What is the truth of that? Um, we're also in, you know, it's impossible to divorce the technology from the society. And so we also are in a time of uh, very, very low trust in government and institutions. And there are some very legitimate reasons why trust in institutions and government are so low. But what that does create is um, even more engagement in the social sphere, even more receptivity to, um, to the, the kind of information that people are, are receiving in those very kind of peer-to-peer type channels. 
And what social media does want to do is keep users on site, keep users feeling engaged. And so this led over time um, to a creation of a series of first people being assembled into particular networks. It started with people you may know and algorithms to shape the way who people knew and who they talked to. And then we moved to much more of an interest-based network, where it's not who you know or are three degrees separate from, but it becomes much more what are you interested in and who are the other people that are interested in that. And that so how, how about an, an internet you know, structured along the lines of who do you love, right? Who's your tribe? Who's your extended family, all right? Or some kind of vouch system where people have to vouch for you and then you get certain privileges, all right? I feel like you should have to have a lot of people vouch for you just to get a driver's license. I think you should have to have people vouch for you and be willing to pay the consequences for you to own a gun, for you to you know, engage in any sort of activity that could be you know, very dangerous to others. You should depend on people vouching for you. Maybe we need a, a more tribal approach to parts of online life, all right? Where the different different channels, right? Different forms of, of social media are suited to the people that you love, right? The people who speak a similar language to you, to your people, to your in-group. So who do you love, I think, is a pretty good guide as well for how to conduct life on social media and how to conduct policies for social media. You know, allow people to affiliate with their in-group. Allow people freedom of association instead of censoring them. That shift into interest base uh, that's where you start to see the kind of unintended consequences where at times platforms began to recommend and to build networks around interests uh, that then you know kind of veered off into some uh, unfortunate and unexpected areas. So for, for the bad actors, whether they be state actors or, or individuals, how much worse do we think AI is going to make this? Like, sh should we be quaking in our boots here about what's coming? I think, again, to use the metaphor of the playing field, um, you have just introduced a new type of technology. So I'm at Stanford Internet Observatory, and one of the things that we do is we assess whenever there's a new platform that comes into the ecosystem, how do people react to it? TikTok, for example. You know, what, how, how did TikTok change away from the kind of big three models of, uh, of where, where people connect and how they get their, their information and what content they create? TikTok. So a lot of our smartest, most influential people are on the left, like this woman, right? Our... Almost all our institutions are dominated by the left. That doesn't mean we don't have anything to learn from them, right? I feel like this woman has a lot of you know, interesting perspectives, even though she's a lefty really significantly shifts things. Um, the creation of what we call sometimes the alt platforms, the sort of right-leaning social media platforms, shifts things. Again, some users kind of migrate in that direction. Um, Telegram, again, this is a global ecosystem. This is not, we talk about it in the context of the US culture war a lot, but it's really quite global. Um, when Facebook decides to moderate Russian state media on Facebook, well, they turn to Telegram. When Telegram geofences them, well, they begin to make other domains and use uh, anonymous channels. So you start to see this, um, anytime there is a shift in the ecosystem, the adversary will adapt. We call it regulatory arbitrage is, is kind of the metaphor that we use for it. Um, so when you have AI or generative text and images and video specifically, you change the kind of content that can be created, who can create it, how much it costs to create it. And so the real shift comes not so much in um, the novelty of the AI, but in who uses it and how. So again. So my, I guess my program platform policies for, for social media would be you know, who do I love? Protecting people I love. So no doxing, right? Doxers would be banned. No threats of violence. They would be banned. Uh, people who encourage dangerous behavior, such as like drinking bleach, uh, they would be banned, right? So it sounds like 
the lamest thing in the world, but my politics, my social media policies are based on love, right? Keeping the people I love safe and allowing them to thrive and to speak speak freely. All right, here she is talking on the academic podcast, Decoding the Gurus. Right before the Botacon attack, Facebook had already made the determination that these accounts were not going to be allowed on the platform. And it had, you know, what, what I don't know if it was called dangerous orgs then, but that was also they had to construct around certain types of groups who were harmful who should not be on the platform. But Twitter was having this question about one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, and if you take down ISIS, what comes next? And so I thought, well, okay, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe we can draw lines around terrorist organizations. Is that, is that, a, is that a thing that we um, can all agree to? But I'm interested in questions as how do you moderate recognizing as you said that it's neutral. So anytime you see a feed, it's ranked. Even reverse chronological is waiting time as the most important factor. It's probably the most neutral in my opinion, uh, but everything else that happens on your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed is ranked according to a recommender system, a curation system, deciding what you're going to want to see and engage with. And so again, there is no neutral. It, it just picks one of these posts. But I was really... That's a really good point. There is no neutral, all right? So it is a responsibility to, to think about who do you want to promote, because the easiest way to engage is to enrage. And so if you're a social media platform, do you want to just promote those who enrage and engage the most? We also struck by the fact that if they change that in any way, you know, all hell would break loose, right? <laughs> so because somebody would lose, right? Some group of pages, some style of content would lose, and some other one would, quote unquote, win, right? We would sort of rise to the top, would get that attention, would get that engagement. And so it turned into these battles. And then, of course, it became partisan, right? This question of um, when uh, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, to, to, to a large extent, created a moderation framework called remove, reduce, and form. Remove was, it came down, right? It's, it comes down, it's gone. Reduce was, it gets throttled in distribution. And the rec, you know, there are not as many recommendations. It's not curated into a feed. That's how reduce works. And then inform is, puts up an interstitial. Literally, the content gets labeled. Sometimes, now, but not in the very beginning, the content being labeled will also trigger some sort of downranking, right? So there's ways in which these two things work together. But I thought, okay, so here we have remove, reduce, and inform. This is great. We can minimize the use of remove, right? Minimize censorship, maximize free expression. We can use reduce for particular types of, you know, time-bounded situations, right? Where we're in a much better place than we were in, in 2020. Remember in 2018, we had that sense of the, the walls were closing in and no more you know, free speech online. And now we've got Rumble, we've got Odyssey, right? we've got you know, multiple platforms where we can speak freely. And then if we want to speak on YouTube or Facebook as I, or Twitter as I am right now, then we have the option of modifying our speech to make it more socially acceptable. But if we want to speak out, all right, we can go to you know, right-leaning social media platforms with less censorship. Maybe a rumor is going viral. Maybe it has the potential to have some kind of harm. Again, harm in the real immediate sense, not in a hand-wavy vague sense. Maybe you could throttle it in that moment while somebody tries to figure out what's going on. And then inform, I thought this is fantastic. And I think this is a lefty, but that's a great point. Harm as in a real-world sense, you know, encouraging people to drink bleach as opposed to harm in the hand-wavy, you know, woke sense. Right? That's a pretty commonsensical useful observation. This is counter speech. This is contextualization, right? You're telling the audience, here's a disputed thing. It's staying up. You can see it. We're not taking it down. But here are like other facts you might want to consider. So I started advocating much more for uh, inform. So looking at uh, Laura Ingram right now, she was one of the first voices who said that Donald Trump could win. So in, in June of 2015, Laura Ingram pretty much led the way among all pundits saying that Donald Trump could very well become the next president of the United States. She was about the first pundit to take... Donald Trump seriously as a presidential candidate. Particularly as COVID started in 2020, really sort of leaning into uh, inform is, is really your best bet here. But then now it's all called censorship. You know? <laughs> so now it's, uh, you know, I mean, everything, everything is censorship. It's a very, it's a very frustrating conversation, I think, particularly as somebody who has really, really tried to drill down on the answer to the question, like, what is the best possible design in a system with no neutral, right? What, and I, and I really have tried to engage, particularly with critics, particularly with, you know, 
friends on opposite sides of this with the question, what do you want? Right? Because you have to be able to answer that question. What is Right. What do you want? Right. Another way of saying that is like, what do you love? And better way of understanding that is whom do you love? Who do you want to protect? Who do you most want to thrive? Right. That, that's a great basis for politics, for, for morality and for making you know, social media policies. The values that you want to encode into the system, into this platform design, into this ranking or curation system that you think is the correct thing to do. Because people who just bitch about censorship all day long, who just say that like a label is censorship, they have no positive vision for you know how you do handle things like what happens when somebody's putting out content telling you that you should drink bleach, right? Which is a thing that really happens. I'm sure you've seen some of these communities, like the like. Yeah, someone who put out content saying you should drink bleach, I would be happy to ban from my social media platforms. Okay, Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Oh, blessings, bro. How you doing? Who do you uh, love, man? Who do boy. you love? I don't know. I feel like I'm Dennis Prager and like I'm looking up and I'm looking at Brutus with a knife in his hand and like, what <laughs> happened, bro? <laughs> you too, Brutus. You too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, bro. You, you're really picking a stand against your old mate, Dennis. Yeah, I have. I mean, I just ignored him, you know, basically for the last seven years. And then after the Trump indictment, I thought, you know, let me go back and just check out what he's saying. And it was just so repellent to me. And just I, I wanted to figure out, you know, what was going on. And so, yeah, that's why I keep uh, keep returning to to what I see as the low level of most right wing punditry. Yeah, but I mean, that audience does play to sort of a kind of a mid tier IQ. It's not going after the. You know, the Luke Ford uh, stratosphere, stratosphere <laughs> IQ, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it is at the end of the day a business, you know, and he's yes. got to like, he's not going to win any viewers by, you know, bringing on psychologists to talk about the nuances of love uh, practices. 31 love, love practices, bro. Love. Isn't that great? This guy's got yeah. 31 concrete, specific love practices. Yeah. So, yeah, at the end of the day, he's sort of circumscribed by his career. Yeah, you know? he, he works in a particular genre. And so it's it's wrong to expect, you know, someone in a particular genre to do something that is, you know, outside of that genre. Now, are you sure there's not some sort of personal venom uh, on your part that's sort of being expressed through your sort of twisted and tawdry history with Dennis? Oh, that, yeah, everyone would have to, you know, make up their own mind. Like, I, I strive to be fair, and uh, and uh, I'll have to have to leave it to other people to figure out. But but I tell you what, I did for, for a year in therapy. I talked about Dennis Prager quite a lot. And, mm. then, and then in something like uh, May of 1999, my therapist said to me, do you want to know what I think? about you know my relationship to Dennis Prager and I said yeah she said well I think because he has such an influence on your life you are determined to have an influence on his life and I remember hearing that and go oh wow and I, I never needed to talk about Dennis Prager in therapy again so after that pretty much it never came up in therapy for over the next over the next uh, like 14 years yeah, she nailed it. You know, I have, I have sort of a similar relationship with uh, Laura Ingram, because Laura Ingram was always sort of 
on my drive time news. You know, this was back in the days of the for the Gulf War, 2003-ish Gulf War. And she was the one berating me and castigating me into accepting this the necessity of the U.S. going into Iraq. And if you're opposed to it, you know, you're a coward and a cuck and a traitor. Yeah. You know? So I always have a, sort of this jaundiced view of Laura Ingram. Um, uh, and I heard she's an absolute tyrant and an absolute bitch behind the scenes. So that's the gossip there. But I think if you're a national figure, I think, you know, I do have a little, or I'll, let me ask you a question. Like, let's say you, instead of having, you know, a handful of listeners, you had a handful <laughs> of millions of listeners, yeah. right? Do you think you'd be able to psycho, psycho, uh, psychologically withstand the stress? Oh, I, I think I could. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do as many shows on 31 Love Practices, but, you know, yeah. I'd have to adapt to that to that genre but i'd like to think that i do something that's that's still smarter than you know what passes for right-wing punditry today just like there are plenty of cartoons that work on a 90 iq level and also on 130 iq level same cartoon but th mm. there are different messages like in a, it like a like a scott adams cartoon for instance no <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's become a meme lately. Has he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you haven't picked up on this. You haven't noticed this. Whenever there's some sort of, uh, sort of uh, different people have different gifts, sort of atrocity. Yeah. In the subway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people will flash to a Scott. <laughs> Scott Adams uh, image, which I think is incredibly funny. Uh, yeah, weird times, man. Like. Uh, I, it's just fun to try and keep it's try to it's it's hard to keep pace, you know. It's just hard to keep pace. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about this this idea? That's I think relatively new to me. That the the sanest basis for politics is just thinking about who do I love, and how do we keep them safe and allow them to thrive. Mm, I don't give it much thought. Um, see, I think that's the difference between uh, I sort of have like this sort of I think about principles and and ideals, yeah. and I'm like I'm like, what are the best ideals? What are the best principles? Right? And shouldn't yeah. we adhere to those? But you have a certain you're presenting an alternative view, which is like, who are the actual people? Right? Yeah. Who are the yeah. who are the flesh and blood people? Who do I care about? And how and should I put those people's lives foremost? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm, I'm saying. Interests frequently over principles. I, I used to primarily be interested in principles. Now I'm primarily interested in interests. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think yours is the more um, ancient, the more uh, instinctual the more uh uh possibly more realistic view um, yeah hardwired and, and i think yours is the more you know elevated uh perspective yeah yeah and you know I, I'm, I'm not trying to argue for one or the other i'm just trying yeah. to say 
these are two um, dominant themes in these within with respect to these questions. And you know, obviously, I would immediately gravitate to what I think. I would think the beliefs that I hold, you know, this sort of this this dogged uh, adherence to elevated principle is the right position, but I haven't really given much consideration to the alternate view. So uh, it's interesting to it's worthwhile meditating upon. And the other thing that, that struck me recently is I've I've gotten to interact quite a deal with you know high functioning people who earn you know well into the, the six figures, and I'm just struck by how little need they have to hang their life on any particular peg, you know, be it politics, sports, uh, religion, culture war. You know, they've got so many things going on in their life. They you know, usually have families, they have children, they have hobbies, they have work that absorbs them. Uh, they, you know, have vacations, uh, community, as opposed to so many people I know who are absolutely deformed by their, their, fervent pursuit of religion or, or politics or you know sports or something else like that it, it just seems like the more the more dogged the more fervent someone's someone's commitment to, to sports politics religion usually the more deformed they are as individuals no i completely agree like the keyword is practical like certain people that ultimately uh, are able to sacrifice their ideals in favor in, in service of the practical are those that win out in the long run because practical is what ultimately practical considerations are ultimately which drive the world on the ground you know in the most fundamental material boring sense but you know People love if if you're if you're a if you're a marginal person with sort of extreme political views, you want to transcend the political, right? It's very it's very attractive to sort of like present yourself as being sort of pure and idealistic and of the mind and uh, beyond such mundane considerations. But in, and, and in doing so, you neglect the practical, and by neglecting the practical, you become very marginalized. And purely uh, proportionally to how thoroughly you neglect the practical. Hmm. I would I would phrase it like this. I think the, the most idealistic thing you can do is to put your family first for, for most people. Like that is idealistic. So whatever you need to do to keep your family safe, to keep your family provided for and to create as much opportunity as possible for your family and for, for your descendants, for your nieces, well, your nephews, right. your grandchildren. That to me strikes me as incredibly idealistic and principled, <laughs> putting your, your people first. Yeah, but what if, okay, just to be the contrarian here, what, let me take counterpoint. What if you're putting your family first uh, impels you towards doing unethical things that you well, can profit from, but that are nonetheless uh, are nonetheless uh, yeah, that's, profitable. That's, they're unethical. Yeah, that's a terrible way of putting your family first because they're going to be negatively affected. So let's say you're you're in some scummy type of you know uh, subprime lending, or you're you're pushing opioids, 
Now, you're engaged in legal behavior, but it, it earns tremendous social opprobrium. Like the, the price that your family and your ancestors and people close to you will have to pay. Like if, if you're you know, a generous donor to, to a synagogue or to a charity, but it's revealed that you've been engaged in really scummy behavior, right? Everything that you've touched will be hurt. So that is not a sustainable way of loving your family, except in certain extreme situations. Yeah, if you're in an extremely dangerous situation, um, you know, cutting ethical corners to provide for your own, you know, makes more sense than living in a you know relatively prosperous, safe country like we have today. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But the two are intention, and it's like I think it's important to keep that alive, keep that awareness alive. Well, I think uh, most like I, I know fathers better than mothers, but I, I you know most fathers I know who are in the workplace, they would rather undergo almost anything, but to be publicly humiliated, you know, due to the ne negative effect they would have on their family, like almost no, you know, high achieving father mm -hmm. that I know of would want to be engaged in anything that could lead to the humiliation of his family. And so most high achieving men that I know, you know, aren't really particularly interested in cutting corners that could, you know, lead to their family's destruction and humiliation. Uh, uh, you're right. And that sounds true to me. Um, so I, I don't think it just shows you what a struggle life is. Like we're in this, we're locked in an iron cage together, Luke. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we agree more than we disagree. Um, excuse, excuse my cough, it's coming back. Uh, oh, here's, right, well, go ahead. But, no, I, uh, I don't have much. I was just going to ask you about virtue signaling. So my, my mind was changed on this when I heard this philosopher talk about how virtue signaling is, is virtuous. And I was like, oh yeah, animals signal, right? Animals send all sorts of messages and signal. And so virtue signaling was always a phrase that I used to put people down. And I completely changed my mind about it in the last few months. It's like, oh wow, virtue signaling is virtuous. So I, I'm sure that kind of sticks in your craw somewhere. It does, it does. I feel like, um... Well, it, does, it often smacks of hypocrisy. There's like this, um, I would put it this way. There's a lot of people that, there's a lot, let's, let's, let's just call them affluent liberals, right? Mm -hmm. Who have considerable uh, wealth and savings in the stock market, right? Yeah. And so, they're they're all too happy to cash those dividend checks, but at the same time, they're they're incredibly, you know, uh, vociferous in their denunciation of the sort of ethical corners that have been cut by these same companies that pay them their dividend checks, right? This is the sort of fundamental uh, conceit of this particular segment, this particular group that is prone to virtue signaling, right? They, they don't acknowledge the interconnection of things. Hmm. Hmm. Does that make sense? 
yeah, most people don't want to think about unpleasant things and <laughs> most people don't want to think about, you know, the ethical shortcuts that they might be taking. Right. So, yeah, people just want to get all the cream, but, you know, they want the cow for free. Yeah. Yeah. They're all too happy to eat the, they, they, they'll eat the beef, but uh, they don't know about how it got there. You know. Here's here's something else I've been doing. Want to bounce off you? And instead of instead of doing shows, some days I've been going back, digging into my records and my archives. And in about the time and space that I can produce like one new show, I can dig up ten, twelve shows from 2018 and put them online again. So that's uh, instead of producing well, I... some new shows, I've just been uploading a whole bunch of the old ones. Well, those you should play on on. On on Sabbath on Saturday. Uh, how, oh, oh, right, right. Can you, you, know, can, you pre, can you like program them to play like as a? Um... Yeah, there is that. I, that is a, a function. Um, that yeah, uh, does that validate? Does that does that validate the Sabbath? <laughs> that's a a good question. I'm sure there'd be some rabbis who'd yeah. say yes, and some rabbis who'd say no. Yeah, I mean, I mean. <laughs> oh no. All right, here's another question, something that I heard, and I thought, oh, I want to bounce this off uh, Elliot. So I heard in one of my 12-step meetings that uh, forgiveness is our natural state when we've released old wounds. Mm, that makes sense to me, yes. Um, you, you want me more than that? Uh, yeah, so forgiveness is sort of like a, uh, you, you can only truly forgive if you've let go at a very deep level right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it takes a long time depending on how fresh and how sharp the wound is you know it may take a super long time to be able to reach that level of detachment yeah um, and you can't really decree from on high how long that should take for any particular person Right, because you don't really know their backstory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they do have to, if they want to be free, if they want to sort of, you know, live life in a more fuller sense, they do ultimately have to let go of that stuff. But it's easier said than done. And I think, oh, yeah, <laughs> I think you have to sort of be aware of that. This is another good sentence I heard. Uh blame is a good place to visit but you don't want to live there and so like some people think oh you should never blame but like if you're hurt you know if you're wounded if you've been victimized you should absolutely you know spend some time in blame you know if you're fired if you suffer a significant loss you know if you're you know, publicly humiliated or you know your life has fallen apart in some way you know blame is usually an essential place to, to visit I mean, it's how we all instinctively, that's where you start. naturally. Yeah, that's where you start. Like, yeah. you, you don't get to, we don't get to transcend blame, right? Blame will no. always play a significant role in, in our life. You just yeah. don't want to, you just don't want to live there. So I think either extreme is wrong. You know, the extreme that you should never blame, you should never get angry, you should never have resentment, right? That's stupid, right? It's not realistic. But, you yeah. know, on the other hand, you don't want to hang out there. Yeah, blame should be like an invitation to introspection. You you absolutely should feel it because it's real in the present. But 
over time, you know, if you like, you know, not to be too cliche, but if you put yourself in the other person's shoes, um, you try to see yourself through their eyes, you know, it sort of does temper your resentment. Um, yeah, yeah. So like, uh, it sort of goes to uh, a sort of background point, like, you know, you know, we talk about IQ all the time and in our little corner here. And what we don't talk about or sort of an IQ is a function of the intellect, right? Mm -hmm. It's how quickly we process information. But underneath the, in, uh, underneath the in intellect, there is this vast reservoir of feelings, of weird, strange feelings. And, and these feelings are often negative. And we don't have any, you know, what we need is knowledge about how to tra uh, traverse this ocean of feelings. And if we're going to talk about, you know, sort of any sort of long-term resolution or some sort of uh, quote-unquote healing of the situation, we have to sort of address feelings in a, a way that's not the simple, like, I feel this, therefore it's true. But, you know, people do need a way to navigate their own personal feelings, their personal negative feelings. Yeah, and you you also there's a time and a place to express it. I mean, as you've pointed out many times on the show, anger has given you the energy and the strength to get things accomplished. So, I mean, anger can play a very important, valuable role in our life when it enables us to get something done immediately. Like, you know, anger over things that took place, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago is obviously not terribly productive, but if anger enables you to successfully, you know, resolve something today, then anger plays, you know, an important role. Yeah, anger and all kinds of negative emotions can be, you know, in the proper context can be yeah. positive. You know, disgust, self-disgust yeah. yeah. can be very positive, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I can't, I, I can't even count the number of times that I've radically changed course because I felt disgusted with myself. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And, but, you know, if we have a culture where love is love and love is the only thing, <laughs> yeah. right? And all other things are just alien and foreign and they're just not natural. I don't think that leads anywhere. I think, you know, I think every human motion comes from somewhere. It's real. If you're feeling it, it's real at some level. It doesn't mean it's the ultimate reality, but it has to be sort of uh, wrestled with. Yeah, I mean, it's what's enabled us to survive, right? The reason that we have any capability, including emotion, is because it's enabled our ancestors to transmit their genes. Right? Those capabilities and emotions that diminished our ancestors' chances of transmitting their, their genes, right? we're much less likely to have that. You know, we wouldn't be here. Like judgment, all right? We're only here because our ancestors applied a tremendous amount of bigotry and prejudice and judgment, particularly against our groups. Because those of our ancestors who weren't constantly judging, constantly anxious, and didn't have negative views of our groups, they didn't survive. <laughs> right? We're only here yeah. because our ancestors were bigots. And when they saw a man laying with a man, they felt disgust. And like, <laughs> if you feel disgust today, you know, you're you're basically expressing this sort of primal judgment <laughs> that that 
may have been adaptive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know, bro. Love is love, but love may not be the right answer all the time, bro. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I think that's all I got, dude. I'll, okay, I'll go thanks, on a high note. I'll go on a high note. All right. All right okay. Blessings. Okay. Blessings. Bye bye. Okay, let's uh, let's learn more about the 31 love practices here by Dr. Michael McGee. The ninth practice is trust. This includes trust in ourselves and our own goodness. It includes trust in the practice of love. And it includes taking progressive steps, intelligent steps, of progressively trusting in people who prove themselves to be trustworthy. The tenth practice is assertiveness. This is the practice of asking for what we want, telling other people what we don't want, and setting limits on others as needed. The 11th practice is affirmation. We affirm both our own and other people's innate goodness. We freely give praise where praise is due. We affirm the good qualities and behaviors of other people. The 12th practice is nurturing. We nurture the growth, well-being, and vitality of all of life, including nurturing ourselves and nurturing others. Nurturing comes in the form of guidance, support, encouragement, and believing in ourselves and others. The 13th practice is acceptance. This is a practice that springs from our practice of appreciation. And so this uh, online 12-step meeting is getting progressively like Zoom bombed. All right, so all sorts of disruptors, you know, are <laughs> flocking into this meeting trying to blow it up. We accept ourselves and others for exactly who we are, and we accept the way things are. In all things, we say, I consent. Through acceptance, we create the conditions for healing, growth, and constructive change. The 14th practice is consideration. We consider the feelings, wants, and needs of others. We think through what would be beneficial and what would be harmful to others. We practice being as mindful as possible of the consequences of our actions on other people. The 15th practice is empathy. We inquire deeply into the experience of another to understand their beliefs, thoughts, and feelings. In this way, we help others to feel known. The 16th practice is kindness. This is the practice of an attitude of unconditional friendliness towards ourselves and others, even when we are upset or angry. Not, not an easy practice. Of the 17th practice of generosity, in which we freely and joyfully give of our time, our attention, our talents, or our material resources to benefit others. The generosity of love gives with a full and open heart without expecting anything in return. Hey, Art Bell's in the, in the chat. Art has been an important part of this community for many, many years. He says that uh, Baked Alaska is headed back to jail. Ethan Rouse seen drinking at his bowling event. Needs uh, daily calls from Luke. The 18th practice is helpfulness. We help each other to, become, to bear and overcome life's difficulties and challenges. We help others with that which they cannot do for themselves. The 19th practice is humility. In so there's just so much goodness, so much greatness, so much wisdom that, that's available in, in people and packages and presentations that... Uh, you know, it may very well make your skin crawl. Like I was not at all receptive to anything this guy had to say, but I just kind of let it wash over me. And then I thought, wow, 
these 31 love practices by Dr. Michael McGee. This is really fair dinkum good stuff, mate. Practicing humility, we see our place in the larger scheme of life, holding ourselves as no more or less than any other person. We maintain an abiding sense of both our infinite sacredness and our insignificance. Yeah, that's beautiful, right? We're both uh, sacred and insignificant. And chat says, Baked Alaska is going to jail for 30 days for macing a bouncer, not for January 6th. It's in Arizona. The 20th practice is respect. We show ourselves and others respect. Huh? And <laughs> so this, this, this uh, 12 zip, you know, Zoom meeting is getting <laughs> bombed. <laughs> but come on, if, uh, if the January 6th protesters and if the you know, people who, who went you know, off the off the derrick, off the off the beaten path, either you know with uh, alt right politics or Antifa politics, if they'd in, imbibed and, and practiced Dr. Michael McGee's thirty one love practices, I think their lives would be considerably better. Hey, if I had uh, paid more attention to Dr. Michael McGee's thirty one love practices, my life would have been better. Conditionally, out of our commitment to being respectful, we keep our own self respect through the, our practice of integrity. The 21st practice is patience. Seeing that all things happen in their own time, we are patient with ourselves and others. So this reminds me when I was trying to moderate a discussion with Jim Goad, and I think the, the Weekly Sweat people put out the, the invite, they publicized it. So I was just like, you know, kicking dozens and dozens of people off the, off the live stream to try to maintain some order. In this, we also practice practice humility, acknowledging that the world does not revolve around our expectations of how things should be or when things should happen. The 22nd practice is accountability. We hold ourselves accountable for our actions. We move from victim to survivor and thriver. So one way to be accountable for your actions is just think about what would happen if my words or my deeds were fairly presented on the front page of the New York Times. It's my favorite, you know, most simple moral test. We take complete responsibility for our lives. We also hold others accountable for their actions. We live an excuse-free life. Yeah, that's an excellent love practice, right? Hold yourself accountable, hold other people accountable. The 23rd practice is integrity. This is the practice of doing the next right thing, moment by moment, so I wanted to live for God. I wanted to fight for good values, right? I wanted to be a, a soldier in Dennis Prager's cultural war, right? I had such you know lofty ideals and ambitions for myself when I you know, became excited about God and ethical monotheism and you know, taking back this country from the satanic, you know, pedophile Democrats when I started listening to Dennis Prager in, in my 20s. But I was so deeply flawed and I was so empty inside. I was such a mess in my own attempts to, you know, just be at ease with myself, let alone with other people. That, you know, everything I touched, I sabotaged. That, you know, everything I touched, I, I dirtied. So, it wasn't until, you know, I developed you know, love and connection in my life that uh, my nervous system started to calm down a bit, and I had, I had more of an ability to, you know, live with a little more integrity. Uh, just reaching directly for integrity, just reaching directly for ethical monotheism, for orthodox Judaism, for for Pragerism, you know, for for self help, for the you know, 
the seven habits of highly effective people, the, the four affirmations or whatever, none of that did me any good, right? It was only when I developed, you know, genuine friendships and, and community that uh, I, I calmed down enough to, to then naturally you know, start uh, getting along more effectively and happily with others. And day by day, even when no one is looking, we maintain our respect through our integrity and make ourselves trustworthy with others. The 24th practice, we're almost done, <laughs> is repair. This is the practice in which we seek to make amends and provide restitution for the harm we have done. The 25th practice is courage. Courage is doing what is right and good, what is loving despite our fear. Courage helps fortify our integrity when there is a risk of harm. And the chat says uh, Nick Fuentes texted, baked, and told him to F off. So I think baked and Nick and Cozy TV have broken up. And what else do we have here? Oh, Godwinson has joined Covey, Cozy TV. It's interesting. The 26th practice is discipline, the, the D word. Discipline is the capacity to do what is good for us and others. Even when we don't feel like it. I think somebody, Jonathan, I think your mic is on. Yeah, I think we're, get, I think we're getting uh, attacked. So I'm trying to send, kick people out as we go along. Okay. Okay. Are we getting Zoom bombed? We could be. See, Alan doesn't show up and all kinds of stuff falls apart. Oh, there you go. Okay. Discipline involves consistency and persistence in the face of tedium and temptations. So, yeah, people who know me well have remarked that I lack this kind of discipline. They used the Yiddish word, Zeitzfleisch. That's the ability to just, you know, sit in this chair, you know, day in, day out, you know, getting getting the humdrum things accomplished. But, you know, I always was chasing drama and excitement and attention. So I lack the discipline to do the basic building blocks of a substantial and decent and adult life. The 27th practice is contentment. Contentment is being happy with who we are, with the people in our lives, and with our life situation, just as it is. It is a practice of reverence for this moment, for others, and for ourselves, just as we are. Yeah, reverence. I think we need more reverence in our lives and on the channel. I, I like this talk about reverence. I, I've forgotten the importance of reverence. When we are content, this moment is more than enough. And as they sometimes say, enough is a feast it's 28 practice. okay how is this posture so you'll notice the head's tipping back which is compressing his neck so i would expect that this guy has considerable back pain and because he's tipping his neck back he's putting pressure on his larynx so i would also expect that this guy you know, loses his voice fairly e easily so definitely benefit from some alexander technique lessons practice is gratitude this is the practice of being thankful to others for how they have. So yeah, notice how stiff, right? The back neck relationship, very stiff. You know, the head, you know, very stiff, right? When you're stiff in your body, you're going to be stiffer in your thinking and in your emotions, right? When you're at ease and flexible in your body, you're much more likely to be at ease and flexible with your thinking and with your emotions. It benefited us and for the good in our lives. The practice of gratitude also stems from our practice of appreciation. The 29th practice is hope. One form of hope in particular, mature hope, sees that in the long run, good prevails over evil, 
and things will eventually work out somehow, some way. Hope and uh, yeah, it's easier, I guess, if you're religious and you believe in an afterlife. Hey, have you guys watched uh, Blackbird on Apple TV? It's a compelling TV series based on a real life story about a guy who's offered a deal to, to get out of prison if he can only get this other guy to confess to, to various murders. So excellent, very compelling show. Just started watching it. Hope sees there is good, even in quote unquote, bad situations. Hope sees a path to a better future. The 30th love practice is endurance. Endurance. And Abel says, I think Luke would have trouble calling Ethan Ralph. Needs to be in a situation where he can't be charmed. Ethan calls Luke the blog father. That's bigger than Lucas. So you, you can never you can never help anyone unless they they, they want want help. They they want genuinely to to change. So I remember George Gilder, the author, right, written a lot of uh, famous books on men and marriage, on Google, on uh, blockchain technology, on on capitalism, but. Uh, I was talking to him before an event, and I noticed he had considerable voice strain. I asked him, have you ever looked into the Alexander Technique? And he said, well, I've had that practiced on me. Well, having the Alexander Technique practice on you does nothing for you. It's going to last and do you any benefit. Like having you know, the 12 steps practice on you is never going to do you any benefit. Having psychotherapy practice on you is never going to do anything for you, right? Until you internalize these things and you know, develop a, a yen for them you know, coming from inside of you, right? You're not going to be transformed. Endurance is the ability to withstand hardship and adversity. It is the capacity to keep going when the going is rough. Our love gives us the grit. Our love gives us the grit to persist and prevail. The twenty, the thirty-first practice, the last one, is devotion. Out of reverence, we devote ourselves to the people in our lives, to our life purpose, and to our love-based principles, and to the practice of loving. So you can see that there are many ways to love. Many ways to love. There are many ways to benefit yourself. Right. So he gave 31 concrete practices to to ha have a more effective and happy life. I, I really like them. Okay. Uh, the Freak says nothing in any of these points is anything more than the book of Proverbs. I'm not sure that's true. But even if you're 100% true, people need things in different language. So I grew up the son of a pastor. And so I was always hearing about God, 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 God. And so I needed different language about God. I needed a new approach about God, not just the, the various religious approaches and philosophical approaches and theological approaches. Like I had those up, the yin-yang, right? I needed the 12-step approach where it's like God with skin on it, where you can talk about God in language such as, you know, reality, right? So getting in touch with reality, right? That, that resonates with me more these days than like getting in touch with God because I've just been bombarded over the course of my life with so much God talk, even though I very much believe in, you know, a creator God who controls and runs the universe, but I need new language. And so even if all this guy was saying were, were basic proverbs, that he gives a new language, that he comes from his own experience and his own education and, you know, new, new ways of packaging, you know, say timeless moral principles, that's incredibly vulnerable. Uh, Bell says, quality clickbait, Ron DeSantis is not running with Elon Musk as his VP, but uh, Ron DeSantis will launch his presidential bid with Elon Musk on Twitter. And what's the Alexander Technique? The Alexander Technique 
is different from any other technique that you may have studied. It is a technique of subtraction, meaning it is a technique of noticing how you interfere with your best functioning. It is a way of noticing how you respond to a stimulus and then a way of letting go of those responses that don't serve you. So, for example, if uh, someone said something caustic or critical in a chat and, you know, I lost my temper, right, that probably wouldn't serve me, right? That would be a reaction that, that didn't serve me. Uh, if, you know, I have a, if I have a boss and the boss criticizes me and I, you know, storm out of the room, right, that wouldn't serve me. So we all have all sorts of reactions that, that don't serve us. Uh, I have a very, you know, needy boy inside who just wants to be loved and just wants to, you know, have sex and just wants to, you know, make out and just wants to lie in bed naked with women and just, you know, wants to be adored by pretty women, right? That's just under my surface. And if I allow, you know, that side of myself to, to run the show, it's not going to get me anywhere good. So that's another example of a response to stimuli that doesn't serve me. So if I'm in an office with attractive women, you know, obviously if I say inappropriate things or I hit on them or, you know, I stare at them or, or all of those, you know, instinctive responses are not going to serve me. If I'm, you know, on public transport or walking down the street and, you know, I'm leering at women or I'm, you know, following women or I, I'm, you know, trying to pick up on women who have absolutely no interest in me, that would be a response to stimuli that doesn't serve me. Now, however deep the, the hunger may be in me at, at that time. So we all have hunger and desires and impulses that uh, don't serve us. And so the Alexander Technique is a way of noticing our reactions to stimuli and learning to let go of those reactions that don't serve us. Lionel Nation runs apps to generate professional thumbnails. We'll hear it. Look forward to it as well. Alon is Musk as vice president would kill anyone's presidential bid. Do I believe that uh, Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth? Yes, I, I do believe that there was a historical Jesus. I don't believe that he is, you know, part of a triune Godhead, and I don't believe that he is the Messiah. Lionel's thumbnail apps and events, my dear boy, have views up 108%. Helps that ads have returned to his videos 10 times the promotion by Google, says Art Bell. All right. Thank you, Art Bell. Always great to hear from you. Take care. Bye-bye.